0: Our goal at the Sleepy Bookshelf is to help the world get better sleep. So, if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners and share the gift of a good night's rest. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening, and welcome to the sleepy bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and I'm so glad you could join me tonight. This evening, we'll be continuing with Journey to the Center of the Earth, but before we do that, go ahead and make sure you're nice and settled into bed. Once you're there, take a deep breath in, and then sigh it all back out. No matter what kind of day you've had, good. Bad or somewhere in between. It's all behind you now, and all that's left to do is relax and get some much deserved rest. So take one more deep breath in, hold it a moment, and exhale. Lovely. Last time the group had departed from Harry's island, and the weather was now changing. Electricity surrounded them in the air, making their hair stand on end. A violent storm erupted, and as it picked up wind, Harry shouted to take down the sail of the raft, but the professor refused hoping the storm would whisk them quicker to land. The tempest raged on, so strong they had to tie themselves down to the raft to avoid falling overboard. Thunder and lightning crashed above them, followed by extraordinary electric phenomena never seen to them above ground. This continued for days, until Harry's written recollection comes to an abrupt end. He picks back up, having been shipwrecked on a shore. The weather was again calm, and the sea tranquil. Hands got to work recovering their items from the waters, and they found that most of their provisions and important instruments were reasonably uncompromised. Deciding to ascertain their approximate location, Harry and the professor got to work. However, on reviewing their compass, they came to a very dreadful discovery. At some point during the storm, the wind must have turned and they were, in fact, back on the same shores they had left before they had begun their sea voyage. Here we pick back up tonight, Harry and the Professor, desperately dismayed at their findings and planning their next move. So lie back and relax. Relax as I turn to the next pages of Journey to the Center of the Earth. Chapter 34 A Voyage of Discovery It would be altogether impossible for me to give any idea of the utter astonishment which overcame the professor on making this extraordinary discovery. Amazement, incredulity, and rage were blended in such a way as to alarm me. During the whole course of my life, I had never seen a man at first, so chapfallen, and then so furiously indignant. The terrible fatigues of our sea voyage, the fearful dangers we had passed through, had all gone for nothing. We had to begin them all over again. Instead of progressing as we fondly expected during a voyage of so many days, We had retreated. Every hour of our expedition on the raft had been so much lost time. Presently, however, the indomitable energy of my uncle overcame every other consideration. So, he said, his face set, Fatality will play me these terrible tricks The elements themselves conspire to overwhelm me with mortification. Air, fire, and water combine their united efforts to oppose my passage. Well, they shall see what the earnest will of a determined man can do. I will not yield. I will not retreat even one inch and we shall see who shall triumph in this great contest, man or nature. Standing upright on a rock, irritated and menacing, Professor Hardwig, like the ferocious Ajax, seemed to defy the fates. I, however, took upon myself to interfere and to impose some sort of check upon such insensate enthusiasm. Listen to me, uncle, I said in a firm but temperate tone of voice. There must be some limit to ambition here below. It is utterly useless to struggle against the impossible. Pray, listen to reason, we are utterly unprepared for a sea voyage. It is simply madness to think of performing a journey of 500 leagues upon a wretched pile of beams with a counterpane for a sail, a paltry stick for a mast, and a tempest to contend with. As we are totally Incapable of steering our frail craft, we shall become the mere plaything of the storm, and it is acting the part of madmen if we, a second time, run any risk upon this dangerous and treacherous central sea. Those are only a few of the reasons and arguments I put together reasons and arguments which, to me, appeared unanswerable. I was allowed to go on without interruption for about ten minutes. To the raft, he said in a firm voice when I paused for a reply. Such was the result of my strenuous effort to resist his iron will. I tried again, I begged and implored him. I got into a passion, but I had to deal with a will more determined than my own. I seemed to feel like the waves which fought and battled against the huge mass of granite at our feet, which had smiled grimly for so many ages at their puny efforts. Hans, meanwhile, without taking part in our discussion, had been repairing the raft. One would have supposed that he instinctively guessed at the further projects of my uncle. By means of some fragments of cordage, he had again made the raft seaworthy. While I had been speaking, he had hoisted a new mast and sail the latter already fluttering and waving in the breeze. The worthy professor spoke a few words to our guide, who immediately began to put our baggage on board and prepare for our departure. The atmosphere was now tolerably clear and pure, and the northeast wind blew steadily and serenely. It appeared likely to last for some time. What then could I do? Could I undertake to resist the iron will of two men? It was simply impossible, even if I could have hoped for the support of Hans. This, however, was out of the question. All I could do, therefore, was to swim with the stream, In a mood of stolid and sullen resignation, I was about to take my accustomed place on the raft when my uncle placed his hand upon my shoulder. "'There is no hurry, my boy,' he said. "'We shall not start until tomorrow.' I looked the picture of resignation to the dire will of fate, Under the circumstances, he said, I ought to neglect no precautions. As fate has cast me upon these shores, I shall not leave without having completely examined them. In order to understand this remark, I must explain that though we had been driven back to the northern shore, We had landed at a very different spot from which had been our starting point. Port Gretchen must, we calculated, be very much to the westward. Nothing, therefore, was more natural and reasonable than that we should reconnoiter this new shore upon which we had so unexpectedly landed. Let us go on a journey of discovery. I suggested, and leaving Hans to his important operation, we started on our expedition. The distance between the foreshore at high water and the foot of the rocks was considerable. It would take about half an hour's walking to get from one to the other. As we trudged along, our feet crushed innumerable shells of every shape and size, once the dwelling place of animals of every period. I particularly noticed some enormous shells, carapaces of turtle and tortoise species, the diameter of which exceeded 15 feet. They had in past ages belonged to those gigantic glyptodons of the Pliocene period, of which the modern turtle is but a minute specimen. In addition, the whole soil was covered by a vast quantity of stony relics, having the appearance of flints worn by the action of waves and lying in successive layers one above the other. I came to the conclusion that in past ages the sea must have covered the whole district. Upon the scattered rocks now lying far beyond its reach, the mighty waves of ages had left evident marks of their passage. On reflection, This appeared to me partially to explain the existence of this remarkable ocean, 40 leagues below the surface of the Earth's crust. According to my new and perhaps fanciful theory, this liquid mass must be gradually lost in the deep bowels of the Earth. I had also no doubt this mysterious sea was fed by infiltration of the ocean above through imperceptible fissures. Nevertheless, it was impossible not to admit that these fissures must now be nearly choked up, for if not, the cavern, or rather the immense and stupendous reservoir would have been completely filled in a short space of time. Perhaps even this water, having to contend against the accumulated subterraneous fires of the interior of the earth, had become partially vaporized, hence the explanation of those heavy clouds suspended over our heads and the superabundant display of that electricity which occasioned such terrible storms in the deep and cavernous sea. This lucid explanation of the phenomena we had witnessed appeared to me quite satisfactory. However great and mighty the marvels of nature may seem to us, they are always to be explained by physical reasons. Everything is subordinate to some great law of nature. It now appeared clear that we were walking upon a kind of sedimentary soil, formed like all the soils of that period, so frequent on the surface of the globe by the subsidence of the waters The professor, who was now in his element, carefully examined every rocky fissure, let him only find an opening, and it directly became important to him to examine its depth. For a whole mile, we followed the windings of the central sea, when suddenly, an important change took place in the aspect of the soil. It seemed to have been rudely cast up, convulsionized, as it were, by a violent upheaving of the lower strata. In many places, hollows here and hillocks there attested great, dislocations at some other period of the terrestrial mass. We advanced with great difficulty over the broken masses of granite mixed with flint, quartz, and alluvial deposits, when a large field, more even than a field, a plain of bones appeared suddenly before our eyes. It looked like an immense cemetery where generation after generation had mingled their mortal dust. Lofty barrows of early remains rose at intervals. They undulated away to the limits of the distant horizon and were lost in a thick and brown fog. On that spot, some three square miles in extent, was accumulated the whole history of animal life. Scarcely one creature upon the comparatively modern soil of the upper and inhabited world had not there existed. Nevertheless, we were drawn forward by an all-absorbing, and impatient curiosity. Our feet crushed with a dry and crackling sound the remains of those prehistoric fossils, for which the museums of great cities quarrel even when they obtain only rare and curious morsels. A thousand such naturalists as Cuvier, would not have sufficed to recompose the skeletons of the organic beings which lay in this magnificent osseous collection. I was utterly confounded. My uncle stood for some minutes with his arms raised on high towards the thick granite vault which served us for a sky. His mouth was wide open. His eyes sparkled wildly behind his spectacles, which he had fortunately saved. His head bobbed up and down and from side to side, while his whole attitude and mien expressed unbounded astonishment. He stood in the presence of an endless, wondrous, and inexhaustibly rich collection of ancient monsters piled up for his own private and pecuniary satisfaction. Fancy an enthusiastic lover of books carried suddenly into the very midst of the famous Library of Alexandria burned to ash, and which some miracle had restored to its pristine splendor. Such was something of the state of mind in which Uncle Hardwig was now placed. For some time, he stood thus, literally aghast in the magnitude of his discovery. But it was even a greater excitement when… Darting wildly over this mass of organic dust, he caught up a naked skull and addressed me in a quiet voice. Harry, my boy. Harry, this is a human head. A human head, uncle, I said, no less amazed and stupefied than himself, Yes, nephew, he said, to my worthy colleagues. Why are you not here where I am? I, Professor Hardwick. Chapter 35 Discovery Upon Discovery In order to fully understand the exclamation made by my uncle, and his allusions to these illustrious and learned men, it will be necessary to enter into certain explanations in regard to a circumstance of the highest importance to paleontology or the science of fossil life, which had taken place a short time before our departure from the upper regions of the earth. On the 28th of March, 1863, some navigators were at work in the great quarries of Moulon quignon near Abbeville in the department of the Somme in France. While at work, they unexpectedly came upon a human jawbone buried 14 feet below the surface of the soil It was the first fossil of the kind that had ever been brought to the light of day. Near this unexpected human relic were found stone hatchets and carved flints, coloured and clothed by time in one uniform brilliant tint of green. The report of this extraordinary an unexpected discovery spread not only all over France but over England and Germany many learned men belonging to various scientific bodies took the affair very much to heart demonstrated the incontestable authenticity of the bone in question and became To use the phrase then recognised, the most ardent supporters of the jawbone question. To the eminent geologists of the United Kingdom, who looked upon the fact as certain, they were soon united the learned men of Germany. And among those in the first rank, the most eager, the most enthusiastic, was my worthy uncle, Professor Hardwig. The authenticity of a human fossil of the Caternary period seemed then to be incontestably demonstrated and even to be admitted by the most skeptical. This system, or theory, call it what you will, had a bitter adversary in M. E. de Beaumont, this man, who holds such a high place in the scientific world, holds that the soil of Moulin-Quignon belongs to a much less ancient stratum, and in accordance with Cuvier in this respect, he would by no means admit that the human species was contemporary with the animals of the katanare epoch. My worthy uncle, Professor Hardwig, in concert with the great majority of geologists, had held firm, had disputed and discussed, and finally, after considerable talking and writing, M. E. de Beaumont had been pretty well left alone in his opinions. We were familiar with all the details of this discussion but were far from being aware that since our departure, the matter had entered upon a new phase. Other similar jawbones, though belonging to individuals of varied types and very different natures, had been found in the movable grey sands of certain grottos in France, Switzerland, and Belgium, together with arms, utensils, tools, bones of children, of men in the prime of life, and of old men. The existence of humans in the Catanare period became, therefore, more positive every day. But this was far from being all. New remains, dug up from the Pliocene or Tashri deposits had enabled the more far-seeing or audacious among them to assign even a far greater degree of antiquity to the human race. These remains, it is true, were not those of men, that is, they were not the bones of men, but objects decidedly having served the human race, shin bones, thigh bones of fossil animals, regularly scooped out and in fact sculptured bearing the unmistakable signs of human handiwork. By means of these wondrous and unexpected discoveries, man ascended Endless centuries in the scale of time. He, in fact, preceded the mastodon and became the contemporary of the Elphus meridionalis, the southern elephant. He acquired an antiquity over a hundred thousand years, since that is the date given by the most eminent geologists to the Pliocene period of Earth. Such was then the state of paleontologic science, and what we moreover knew sufficed to explain our attitude before this great cemetery of the plains of the Hardwig Ocean. It will now be easy to understand the professor's mingled astonishment and joy when, on advancing about twenty yards, he found himself in the presence of, I may say, face to face with, a specimen of the human race actually belonging to the Katernare period. It was indeed a human skull, perfectly recognizable, had a soil of very peculiar nature, like that of the cemetery of Saint-Michel at Bordeaux, preserved it during countless ages. This was the question I asked myself, but which I was wholly unable to answer. But this head, with stretched and parchment-like skin, with the teeth whole, the hair abundant, was before our eyes as in life. I stood mute, almost paralyzed with wonder and awe before this dread apparition of another age. My uncle, who on almost every occasion was a great talker, remained for a time completely dumbfounded, He was too full of emotion for speech to be possible. After a while, however, we raised up the body to which the skull belonged. We stood it on end. It seemed, to our excited imaginations, to look at us with its terrible, hollow eyes. After some minutes of silence… The man was vanquished by the professor. Human instincts succumbed to scientific pride and exultation. Professor Hardwig, carried away by his enthusiasm, forgot all the circumstances of our journey. The extraordinary position in which we were placed, and the immense cavern which stretched far away over our heads, there can be no doubt that he thought himself at the institution, addressing his attentive pupils, for he put on his most doctoral style, waved his hand, and began to speak. Gentlemen, I have the honor on this auspicious occasion to present to you a man Of the Caternary Period of our globe. Many learned men have denied his very existence, while other persons, perhaps of even higher authority, have affirmed their belief in the reality of his life. If the St. Thomases of Paleontology were present, they would reverentially touch him with their fingers, and believe in his existence, thus acknowledging their obstinate heresy. I know that science should be careful in relation to all discoveries of this nature. I am not without having heard of the many Barnums and other quacks who have made a trade of such like, pretended discoveries. I have, of course, heard of the discovery of the knee bones of Ajax and of the body of Asterius, ten spans long, fifteen feet, of which we read in Pausanias. I have read everything in relation to the skeleton of Trapani, discovered in the fourteenth century, and which many persons chose to regard as that of Polyphemus and the history of the giant dug up during the 16th century in the environs of Palermo. You are well aware, as I am, gentlemen, of the existence of the celebrated analysis made near Lucerna in 1577, of the great bones which the celebrated Dr. Felix Platter declared belonged to a giant about 19 feet high. I have devoured all of the treatises of Cassinion and all those memoirs, pamphlets, speeches, and replies published in reference to the skeleton of Tutobocus the Cimbrian king, the invader of Gaul, dug out of a gravel pit in Dauphine in 1613. In the 18th century, I should have denied with Peter Campet the existence of the pre-Adamites of Shosa. I have had in my hands the writing called Gigants... Here. My uncle was afflicted by the natural infirmity, which prevented him from pronouncing difficult words in public. It was a strange sort of constitutional hesitation. Gigantosteology, at last said Professor Hardwig. Having got over his difficulty, he became more and more excited. Yes, gentlemen, I'm well acquainted with all these matters, and know also that Cuvier and Blumenbach fully recognized in these bones the undeniable remains of mammoths of the Caternary period, he said. But after what we now see, to allow a doubt... to insult scientific inquiry. There is the body. You can see it. You can touch it. It is not a skeleton. It is a complete and uninjured body preserved with an anthropological object. I did not attempt to controvert this singular and astounding assertion. If I could but wash this corpse in a solution of sulfuric acid, continued my uncle, I would undertake to remove all the earthy particles and these resplendent shells which are encrusted all over this body. But I am without this precious dissolving medium. Nevertheless, Such as it is, this body will tell its own history. Here, the professor held up the fossil body and exhibited it with rare dexterity. No professional showman could have shown more activity. As on examination, you will see, my uncle continued, It is only about six feet in length, which is a long way from the pretended giants of early days. Of course, nobody smiled, but the excellent professor was so accustomed to beaming countenances at his lectures that he believed he saw all his audience smiling during the delivery of his learned dissertation. Yes, he continued with renewed animation, this is a fossil man, a contemporary of the mastodons with the bones of which this whole amphitheater is covered. But if I am called on to explain how he came to this place, how these various strata by which he is covered have fallen into this vast cavity, I can undertake to give you no explanation. Doubtless, if we carry ourselves back to the Quaternary Epoch, we shall find that great and mighty convulsions took place in the crust of the earth, the continually cooling operation, through which the earth had to pass, produced fissures, landslips, and chasms, through which a large portion of the earth made its way. I come to no absolute conclusion, but there is the man, surrounded by the works of his hands, his hatchets, and his carved flints, which belong to the Stone Age, and the only rational supposition is that, like myself, he visited the center of the Earth as a traveling tourist, a pioneer of science. At all events, there can be no doubt of his great age and of his being one of the oldest race of human beings. The professor with these words ceased his oration, and I burst forth into loud and unanimous applause. Besides, after all, my uncle was right. Much more learned men than his nephew would have found it rather hard to refute his facts and arguments another circumstance soon presented itself. This fossilized body was not the only one in this vast plain of bones. The cemetery was of an extinct world. Other bodies were found as we trod the dusty plain, and my uncle was able to choose the most marvelous of these specimens In order to convince the most incredulous. In truth, it was a surprising spectacle, successive remains of generations and generations of men and animals, confounded together in one vast cemetery. But a great question now presented itself to our notice, and one we were actually afraid to contemplate in all its bearings. Had these once animated beings been buried so far beneath the soil by some tremendous convulsion of nature, after they had been earth to earth and ashes to ashes, or had they lived here below, in this subterranean world, under this factitious sky, born, married, and given in marriage, and died at last, just like ordinary inhabitants of the earth. Up to the present moment, marine monsters, fish, and such-like animals had been seen alive, the question which rendered us rather uneasy was a pertinent one. Were any of these men of the abyss wandering about the deserted shores of this wondrous sea of the center of the earth? This was a question which rendered me very uneasy and uncomfortable. How should they really be in existence? Would they receive us men from above? Chapter 36 What is it? For a long and weary hour, we tramped over this great bed of bones. We advanced regardless of everything, drawn on by ardent curiosity. What other marvels did this great cavern contain? What other wondrous treasures for the scientific mind? My eyes were quite prepared for any number of surprises. My imagination lived in expectation of something new and wonderful. The borders of the great central ocean had for some time disappeared behind the hills that were scattered over the ground occupied by the plain of bones. The imprudent and enthusiastic professor, who did not care whether he lost himself or not, hurried me forward. We advanced, silently, bathed in waves of electric fluid… By reason of a phenomenon which I cannot explain, and thanks to its extreme diffusion now complete, the light illumined equally the sides of every hill and rock. Its seat appeared to be nowhere, in no determined force, and produced no shade whatever. The appearance presented was that of a tropical country at midday in summer, in the midst of the equatorial regions and under the vertical rays of the sun. All signs of vapor had disappeared. The rocks, the distant mountains, some confused masses of far-off forests assumed a weird, and mysterious aspect under this equal distribution of the luminous fluid. We resembled, to a certain extent, the mysterious personage in one of Hoffman's fantastic tales, The Man Who Lost His Shadow. After we had walked about a mile farther, we came to the edge of a vast forest not, however, one of the vast mushroom forests we had discovered near Port Gretchen. It was the glorious and wild vegetation of the Tashri period in all its superb magnificence. Huge palms of a species now unknown, superb palmocytes, a genus of fossil palms from the coal formation. Pines, yews, cypresses, and conifers or cone-bearing trees, the whole bound together by an inextricable and complicated mass of creeping plants. A beautiful carpet of mosses, and ferns grew beneath the trees. Pleasant brooks murmured beneath darkened boughs, little worthy of this name, for no shade did they give. Upon their borders grew small tree-like shrubs, such as are seen in the hot countries on our own inhabited globe, The one thing wanting in these plants, these shrubs, these trees, was color. Forever deprived of the vivifying warmth of the sun, they were vapid and colorless. All shade was lost in one uniform tint of a brown and faded character. The leaves were wholly devoid of verdure, and the flowers, so numerous during the tertiary period which gave them birth, were without colour and without perfume, something like paper discoloured by long exposure to the atmosphere. My uncle ventured beneath the gigantic groves. I followed him though not without a certain amount of apprehension. Since nature had shown herself capable of producing such stupendous vegetable supplies, why might we not meet with mammals just as large and therefore dangerous? I particularly remarked in the clearings left by trees that had fallen and been partially consumed by time, many bean-like shrubs, such as the maple and other eatable trees, dear to ruminating animals. Then there appeared confounded together and intermixed the trees of such varied lands, specimens of the vegetation of every part of the globe, there was the oak near the palm tree, the Australian eucalyptus, an interesting class of the order of Myrtaceae, leaning against the tall Norwegian pine, the poplar of the north, mixing its branches with those of the New Zealand cowers. It was enough to drive the most ingenious classifier of the upper regions out of his mind and to upset all his received ideas about botany. Suddenly, I stopped short and restrained my uncle. The extreme diffuseness of the light enabled me to see the smallest object, In the distant copses. I thought I saw. No, I really did see with my own eyes immense, gigantic animals moving about under the mighty trees. Yes, they were truly gigantic animals, a whole herd of mastodons, not fossils but living, and exactly like those discovered in 1801 on the marshy banks of the Great Ohio in North America. Yes, I could see these enormous elephants, whose trunks were tearing down large boughs and working in and out the trees like a legion of serpents, I could hear the sounds of the mighty tusks uprooting huge trees. The boughs crackled, and the whole masses of leaves and green branches went down the capacious throats of these monsters. That wondrous dream, when I saw the anti-historical times revivified, when the tertiary and quaternary periods passed before me was now realized. And there we were alone, far down in the bowels of the earth, at the mercy of its ferocious inhabitants. My uncle paused, full of wonder and astonishment. Come, he said at last when his first surprise was over. Come along, my boy, and let us see them nearer. No, I replied, restraining his efforts to drag me forward. We are wholly without arms. What should we do in the midst of that flock of gigantic quadrupeds? Come away, uncle, I implore you. No human creature can with impunity brave these monsters. No human creature, said my uncle, suddenly lowering his voice to a mysterious whisper. You are mistaken, my dear Harry. Look yonder. It seems to me that I behold a human being. Being like ourselves, a man. I looked, shrugging my shoulders, decided to push incredulity to its very last limits. But whatever might have been my wish, I was compelled to yield to the weight of ocular demonstration. Yes, not more than a quarter of a mile off. Leaning against the trunk of an enormous tree was a human being, a proteus of these subterranean regions, a new son of Neptune, keeping this innumerable herd of mastodons, the keeper of gigantic cattle, himself still more gigantic. Yes, it was no longer a fossil whose corpse we had raised from the ground in the Great Cemetery, but a giant capable of guiding and driving these prodigious monsters. His height was above 12 feet. His head, as big as the head of a buffalo, was lost in a mane of matted hair was indeed a huge mane, like those which belonged to the elephants of the earlier ages of the world. His hand was a branch of a tree, which served as a crook for this antediluvian shepherd. We remained profoundly still, speechless with surprise. we might at any moment be seen by him. Nothing remained for us but instant flight. Come, come, I said, dragging my uncle along, and for the first time, he made no resistance to my wishes. A quarter of an hour later, we were far away from that gigantic man Now that I think of the matter calmly, and that I reflect upon it dispassionately, now that months, years have passed since this strange and unnatural adventure befell us, what am I to think? What am I to believe? No, it is utterly impossible. Our ears must have deceived us, and our eyes have cheated us. We have not seen what we believed we had seen. No human being could, by any possibility, have existed in that subterranean world. No generation of men could inhabit the lower caverns of the globe without taking note of those who peopled the surface, without communication from them, folly, nothing else. I am rather inclined to admit the existence of some animal resembling in structure the human race, of some ape, of the first geological epochs. But this animal, or being, whichsoever it was, surpassed in height all things known to modern science, never mind. However unlikely it may be, it might have been a monkey, but a man, a living man, and with him a whole generation of gigantic animals buried in the entrails of the earth. It was too monstrous to believe."